Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And we're talking to you from a boondocking campsite, something <sighs> we don't do very often. Fully and, operational on batteries only. Uh-oh. And we're so devoted to our podcast <laughs> listeners, we're making our podcast with battery power. And we're under the trees, so we have no satellite connection. Oh, this feels no. positively this medieval. almost real camping. <laughs> but it's far too cold for us. Here we are in April 2011, and it's freezing cold here in Mississippi. Well, we've traveled just a little bit since we talked to you last. Mostly north, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, after doing the Mardi Gras in New Orleans, as we left you last time, we headed back to a campground that we talked to you about before, Betty's RV Park. In Abbeville, a nowhere kind of place. Louisiana. But if you want some good eating, Abbeville is a wonderful place to go. Yes, uh, about 100 miles from New Orleans and more in Cajun country. And we had such a good time last year enjoying the food. And I think if you look back at some of the earlier podcasts, you'll remember us talking about little out-of-the-way restaurant places that had great crawfish and other food to sample and we certainly uh, had a good time sampling it and the thing with betty's is that she only has 17 sites and you never know quite what to expect because a lot of what goes on at her campground is determined by the people that are there and we were very fortunate this time to have a couple staying there from just a ways down the road in lake charles louisiana less than an hour and um he was a restless soul who liked to have projects so he took on a big one and he volunteered to cook fresh crawfish for anybody so, in the campground who was interested so we were we're very interested to see this whole process because last time we, uh, we went to a couple of crawfish boils where you uh, go to and eat them, but uh, we didn't see the whole process. So he bought 130 pounds of fresh crawfish on the hoof and for about uh, 12, 15 people. So these uh, 15 people, it sounds like an awful lot of crawfish for so few people, doesn't it? Well, they did have a few leftovers, but not many. Right. And, and he also cooked potatoes and corn, corn. on the cob mm, with them. Mm. And you boil it all up in crawfish boil seasonings. And first he uh, put the crawfish, while they were still alive, in fresh cold water with Salt crawfish water. seasoning uh, so that they could um, eliminate things from their <laughs> digestive tracts before we ate them, which seemed like a, an because, important step. Because there is a vein, or well, not exactly Like a, a shrimp vein, vein. That goes down the back of the meat that you eat, and it's better to have it empty rather than full. We won't say why. <laughs> Every person eats about... Uh, it's five or six pounds of crawfish because the you eat just the tails. Well, some people eat more, as we found out. They like the... Ugh. The fat in the head. The fat in the head. She was scooping it out with her finger. <laughs> this was the wife of the cook, who seemed to also know more much, much more than we did about the whole process. So each crawfish is about a bite. And so eating 10 or 12 pounds of them leaves lots of waste and... 
doesn't give you a whole lot of meat, but it sure was good. And it's, of course, always good to go to a crawfish boil in a restaurant, but watching the whole process from the beginning to the end was very educational for us people. From Indeed. And then we had crawfish etouffee, and we had crawfish poor boys. And gumbo. Boys, and crawfish gumbo. It was delicious. And we should mention that uh, if this has piqued your interest, that we notice that you can go to virtually any Walmart, <clears throat> and in the seafood frozen section, uh, it, there you will find packages in season, which is right now. In the spring. In the spring, you will find packages of frozen crawfish tails. Now, that's just the meat. And about for 6 or $7, you can buy yourself 12 ounces of crawfish meat ready to eat. Sadly, they're not from Louisiana, but from China. But, but crawfish is crawfish. But in our freezer down there, they had local. actual local uh, crawfish tail meat, <laughs> which was about 13 or $14 a pound. Well, you it's can amazing. understand it's so labor-intensive to get all that meat out of the shelves. But, uh, but shipping it all the way from China, yeah, well, frozen or whatever. Get and, the wages we get. I know. Gosh, it's just incredible that you could ship it that far. Anyway, we had a good time at Betty's and in other places. We went uh, and heard a lot of music. And that's another uh, big activity down in that area. We went to Saturday afternoon. Jam session at the bar? Jam session at the bar. We went to a local radio program that uh, produced Cajun music on a live basis on Saturday night. For National Public Radio. For National Public Radio. In Louisiana. And we asked the difference between Cajun and Zydeco. Now, probably some of you are screaming at your iPod saying, they don't know the difference between Cajun and Zydeco. Sorry, we didn't know. Because superficially they seem similar in that both of them use a lot of the same <laughs> instruments that you would see in a country band, yes. plus a very idiosyncratic accordion, uh, much smaller and with less keys and buttons than the kind that you would normally see like in a polka band. But not. the Zydeco band often has um, somebody playing on a washboard and spoons, and I think that's, yeah, that that's music necessary. apparently was African-based, and uh, the African-Americans, having less wherewithal, uh, made a lot of their music with what I would call found items, anything that they was laying around that they could make music or beat with, where the Cajun music was more French-based. Right, so if it has kind of a kind of a metallic sound to it. It's probably Zydeco. And they tell us that the that the choruses are repeated uh, a lot and that there are a lot of repeated uh, lyrics also. But we so, couldn't tell because they were French. And many times they were French. And so that would be an indication that it's probably Cajun. I don't think the Creole or the Zydeco is as much French. So, again, we would really recommend this area of the country, not yes. because there's a lot of big sightseeing things to do. We went to a, an oil drilling platform and learned yeah. about that process in Morgan City. Morgan City. That was kind of interesting. So there are some and, and smaller kinds of touristic things to and do. And no beaches because that area is... It has that, no beach. Well, and that is the area that was impacted heavily by the... Oil spill, but they didn't have beach even before. It's marshy. yeah, yeah. But I mean, the reason why it was impacted so much is, and they can't clean it up, is because it was marshland, right, or bayou. But when you're talking about interesting eating and the culture of the music, uh, it's one of the most interesting parts of the country. We think just lots to do with them if you like music and eating. 
So now we've come a bit north of Louisiana yes. following the Mississippi River, and we had a much better time than we mm-hmm. expected to have in Natchez because we were there during the pilgrimage. We, being Yankees, oh, yes. had never heard of this and before. And that always helps. But for the pilgrimage, a lot of the locals who live in fine antebellum-type homes open them up for you to see on selected days, not every day of the week, or they would be exhausted. And you can see these in addition to a number of other wonderful plantation homes that are open year-round for fee. One was owned by the DAR and one was owned by the Garden Club. And uh, you can just go to fine homes and talk and to the, the owners. the were out and the gardens were beautiful. It was very interesting, and uh, each home was a little bit different. The way each owner chose to present their home was a little different. We could have gone to almost 30 homes in all, and after a while they all start looking the same. It made me think of when we were buying a home for ourselves, and the realtor takes you around a home (laughs) after home and shows you stuff. But many of the houses are only open at the pilgrimage, and so you get to talk to the owner and many times they have a very historical connection. We talked to one family who had been in the house for five generations. And it almost seemed to be a burden to them. They had accumulated <laughs> so much stuff from their relatives. And I'm not talking about hoarder, junky stuff. But, no, no. But, like, they had a, a well, sword that one of their relatives had used to fight Napoleon. And, 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 and then they took toys. it to the Confederate War and somebody shot a bullet through the scabbard. And you could see the hole. And, you know, how could you throw that away? Yes, exactly. Uh, so... You know, this is a really unique opportunity rather than just listening to a tour guide talk about a house. You're actually talking to somebody who has knows the history of the house because they've lived much of it. The families have uh, lived in the house for since the, the generations, 18, 1800s, 1840s, 1830s, and sometimes even earlier. And certainly the houses were built, some of them, in the, in the late 1700s. So it's quite uh, something to see. And in perfect weather with nice flowers and beautiful... And if there are any non-campers listening to us, which is hard to imagine, uh, you can also stay in a number of these homes as B&B opportunities, which would be fun, too. B&B opportunities <clears throat> in one of these houses. Yeah, that would be very special, staying in those very special beds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Of course, nowadays these houses have been completely modernized so that they have <laughs> air conditioning and indoor plumbing and <laughs> all of those good things because they talked about all the hardships, uh, you know, with the kitchen being disconnected from the house. Always. Always. And, you know, the, the the slaves, of course. And that was an interesting proposition. Oh, and we also went to a museum uh, just across the river in Louisiana from Natchez, which was teaching us about cotton, which is something else we Yankees didn't know much about. And they let us pick some. I couldn't believe <laughs> one little cotton ball had like Martha, the picker. 28 seeds in it. And they were so tightly wound in there. It took me 20 minutes but, to and, get them and, all out with my fingers. And you had to drag fingers. the sack that weighed 250 pounds full of the day's worth of, of cotton that you picked. And of course these days the whole process is highly mechanized and they seem to be making good money off of cotton there, at least at the moment. Uh, yeah, but there's been a lot of ups and downs in the cotton fields uh, of Louisiana because they've gone through bow weevil, which is a bug that kills off the the cotton, which was just like a depression for all this area. Of course, the Civil War, which caused big problems, and uh, mechanization. Before they had the cotton gin, it was virtually impossible. One person could do, what they say? One, two or three pounds of cotton a day. A day yeah, I believe it. Because there are 28 seeds per bowl. bowl of cotton, and you have to take them all out. And as we found out, that's not very easy. 
So you now probably know much more than you care to know. And if you're not a damn Yankee, you probably already knew it, because my sister lives near Fountain Fields and said... Oh, we found it interesting. Said, yawn, yawn, big deal. <laughs> but the real reason we came to Natchez was not to go to the pilgrimage. That was kind of a lucky accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, we came to Natchez to drive the Natchez Trace. Uh-huh which is known as America's first interstate. I just read that today. Um, there was a time period when people were using the Mississippi River to float goods down to New Orleans, but there were no steam engines or any other kind of engines yet to take the boats back upstream. So these tradespeople sold their boats when they got to New Orleans for scrap and walked back to where they came from. <laughs> walked. And so uh, one of the major, over a month. major pathways was this trace, which apparently started out as a buffalo path, and then the Indians were using it, and and it became kind of a formalized interstate highway, so to speak, where people would walk from Natchez to Nashville, a distance of over 440 miles. Um, every 15 miles or so, there was some kind of accommodation, right. if you can call it that. They called them stands, and it sounds like some of them were very primitive. And others happened to be farmhouses that were located in that area and thought, what the heck, all these people are passing by, let's make some money. And, of course, this was all before the Civil War because as soon as the steam engine came along and paddle wheel steamers, people were able to take boats back up the river. But uh, before that, they had to walk because that's the only way they could get their stuff to market so that it was uh, definitely a trail that everybody used. Now, the trace uh, has been part of the federal parkland property since uh-huh. the 1930s, but as a driving road, it wasn't really finished until the new millennium. Um, so we hadn't really heard much about it, and we still are not sure why they saved it, because part of the problem with the trace is that everything interesting that happened here happened 200 years ago and isn't here to be seen anymore. <laughs> So you, you'll be driving along, reading the little guide, and, and they'll have a little pull-off, which is large enough for a motorhome pulling a toad. And yep. um, you'll, you'll read the description about a stand, which was a little place to stay, that hasn't been there for 200 years. And you're looking at a bunch of trees, and you're so thinking, a, why am I here? This is a 440-mile limited-access road. And that's kind of neat because when you think about it, how many times can you drive 440 miles on a road that has no billboards or restaurants or gas stations? It's just pristine. Literally pristine through the forest with turnouts for various historical stops. And it is owned by the, uh, the National Park Service, and I think it is a national park or a national something. Parkway. Parkway. Um, so it's a linear park, and there are interpretive places along the route, and there are three campgrounds. Which is why we're boondocked as we're talking to you tonight, because their three campgrounds do not have facilities. You have to be <laughs> self-contained, and you cannot make a reservation, but, which made me very anxious, um, because it's first comes, first serve, and if you get here and it's full, it wasn't very clear to me what you're supposed to do about it. But they're free. But the sites are very long, and apparently people just stack and, up behind each other in the sites. And, and big rig friendly. And we've watched somebody pull in behind and us in the site that we're in, and that's okay, I guess. They will have to back out unless we leave first, which is unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> we're not noted for getting up very early in the morning, I'm afraid. 
So we may understand the trace better after we drive a bit more of it. We've done Stay about, tuned for next month's episode. We've only done about 100 miles so far, right? Or so? Oh, well, 100, we're on, we're on, 130. Yeah. No, we're on 193. So we should be talking about some other things besides our own experiences. What else is going on in the RV world? And uh, we found an article that is good information but kind of depressing to read because somebody here has researched the main reasons that people make insurance claims for their RVs. By reading this article, it kind of reminds you of things that you should be be paying better attention to. Uh, The number one claim this person has written, 400 claims a year involving fires around the back of your refrigerator, which is certainly terrifying to think about. When it's in the gas mode, of course, uh, there's a chance that you'll have a propane leak and there could be a fire back there. And we've talked about the um, upgrades that you need to do to your refrigerator, but that's to keep it from the refrigerant from leaking out and then catching on fire. But this is just plain gas line leaks, and that RV uh, insurance companies have a problem with this. How to avoid it? Well, you need to have it checked regularly, and because your RV is bouncing down the road, those connections can get loose, and you can check it with uh, soapy water, never with a match, needless to say. Oh. <laughs> hate to think about it. <laughs> well, if you see a little blue flame... <laughs> When you put the match on. However, if the whole compartment goes up, you know it's a big leak. <laughs> and it's too Maybe, late. Of course, that may be some of the, the causes of, uh, of the, the fires. The second biggest claim that um, insurance companies get from RVers is RVers who are hitting things with the top <laughs> of their RV. This could be a gas station overhang or a bridge, or I have very vivid memories of a time when we were camping in South Africa and one of our uh. neighbors ran their RV into an overhanging tree limb because they forgot to pay attention and to of that. Of course, a few months ago we had that video of the yeah. running into yeah. our gas station. <laughs> so obviously it's very important to know how tall you and, are. And how tall is our RV? Tall enough. How tall is our RV? Twelve. How tall is our RV? I can't I just told you the other day because you asked me. But I forgot. Well, you're no good at all. Well, when you're at a gas station, they don't tell you how tall their overhang is anyway. You need to get out and watch while the other person is pulling in. But and that's true for overhanging trees as well. They don't have little signs on them. 12 foot 8 inches. Okay. Is that including the air conditioner That's including on top? the air conditioner. Which is also something to pay so attention 13 to. 13 feet. So when we put it into the geo, GPS, the, the POI that has the low overhangs, you need to put in the right one. Number three. People who forget to put their RV steps back in and people who don't put their awnings back properly. Uh He's kind of lumped them together. And certainly one way to solve the step problem is to be spoiled as we are and have a motorhome (laughs) that puts the steps away as soon as you close the door. But on a fifth wheel or a travel trailer, we've we've made this mistake. And you leave the trailer, the, the steps out and somebody nicks them as they're driving by and you'll find that the awning unless you lock it tight against the motorhome that a truck coming by will pull it out and then when it starts to unroll it's all over (laughs) all over the road and of course another issue with awnings is leaving them open when it's raining or very windy and making sure that if you do have it open in the rain that it's tipped so that the water can wash out rather than gather and get heavier and heavier and yeah. rip itself off yeah. your wall. And the next one, as you would expect, was is tire blowouts. 
But tire blowouts are not, uh, even though you have safely stopped, that doesn't necessarily mean you're out of the woods in terms of damage because what happens with a trailer tire is is that the tread comes off and then it shreds the inside of the wheel well, which goes uh, up inside the RV and can cause big damage to the structure of the RV. So tires not only blow out and cause just the aggravation of having a flat, but also can cause major damage to your RV itself, be it a motorhome or whichever kind of RV you have, because if that tread starts to separate, you're in big trouble. In problem number five, we had a small incident of it ourselves this mm, year. Yes. Um, problems caused by rodent infestation. <laughs> and and I'm quite compulsive when we park our RV at the end of the season to take all the food out, because that's obviously one thing that brings rodents in. But even if you don't have any, they come in looking for a safe place to be, somewhere slightly warmer. Uh, they eat your wires. They can do all sorts of nasty things. Well, this one was, what was the eating we just said? He ate all the labels off of your Spices. Of my spices. And I had a plastic bag that had been washed that had meat I mean, in we it. We had no food in here. No, he had nothing to eat. And we did find him dead on the On sofa. our couch. His little decomposing body was in my upholstery. <laughs> Luckily, it was only one. Luckily, he was small. Luckily, I have a nice pillow to put over the spot. <laughs> Anybody want to use RV with a dead corpse molding away in it? And, of course, where you park your RV can be a factor, but you don't always have a choice. Uh, where we live, we have a parking lot where we put it, and that's where it has to be. Well, I think in the summer or in warm climates, it's much more of a problem. And we know lots of people that keep them by their house or in a pole barn. Because in actuality, this uh, mouse was frozen when we found it, even though its body had decomposed. It was still frozen. But in warm weather, they will just multiply and more of them will come in and... And this person says you it's probably a bad strategy to leave baited traps because the bait yeah. attracts the mice. And people have tried mothballs, mm. which smell really bad, and insect spray. I, I, there just doesn't seem to be a foolproof proof method for preventing no. this. Um, certainly sealing all the holes, holes, that, yeah. holes that you can find is a good idea, but there's always one more hole. You know, I have no idea how that guy got in. For, there's for always one more hole. Because they didn't jump in the door, and that's really the only place to get in. New and cool stuff that we have found. Oh, yes. I always am seeking the latest and the greatest. And one of the things that uh, I've found, uh, which I think will be very helpful for many people, is a new uh, generator from Genrec. And the reason why I really like it is that it's only 800 watts. Now, for most people, you know, if you have a big RV, 800 watts is nothing. But this... This little guy only weighs 23 pounds. So if you have a pop-up or just a regular travel trailer, you know, 800 watts will get you a TV and VCR and it'll make coffee and that sort of stuff. And it only 23 pounds, and, of course, it only has a half a gallon fuel tank so that it doesn't take much fuel. You know, you can, and it's quiet, and so it's it's one of these new inverter ones and probably not too expensive either. So this is the Genrack ix800 you might want to take a look at it if you're in the market for a generator it's something that you could just throw in the back of your pickup truck and and have it there in case you need uh, power you know even for lunch you could start it up we also have we found an application a new piece of software called rv care 
which is for Windows, and, of course, we like always Mac-friendly stuff. So this is for Mac and Windows. And this is a relational database that keeps track of vehicle data, um, make, model, and VIN number, component names, vendor data, service data, uh, what kind of problems you've had. And the good thing is is that it's free. I really like that. The guy is, uh, has made this database and is giving it away for you to use. And I will put the information for that, of course, on our website. So be sure to take a look at that. And then there are these dancing tables. I read this twice, and I still have a hard time visualizing it. Is this kind of like the little well, up-and-down yeah, yeah. coffee table that we have? Yeah, yeah, I think so. But not made out of wood. And it's made by Dicor, which is a big company. Uh-huh. And I, I get the impression it's not made out of wood. It looks like a glass top to uh, me. Or plastic or... Yeah, but one that you could, kind of like a TV table, that you could move up and down and use it for a variety of things in your RV. Yeah, like, like, like there have been times when we've had people over for dinner and we needed a little extra seating space at the dining room table so you could put it up tall. And then you might want to have hors d'oeuvres or dessert at the couch later in the evening, and then you would make it into a coffee table height. Very versatile. Probably this company, Dicor, has seen how popular the wooden ones are and is making something a competition. And it might be lighter. Our wooden one is heavy for me to move around. (laughs) Now, the next one is kind of funny. Did you understand this? It's called the Chad Pad. It soaks up gas. Yeah. For when you spill it. Why is it called a Chad Pad? Like hanging chads? Yeah. So this is an absorbent pad that you put over the gas nozzle and or over your the neck of your gas cap, and when the gas overflows, it soaks it up. Instead of, of just letting it run down the side? Like we do. Well, I don't know about you, but for us... And I get in uh, into one of these places that has a high-speed nozzle. And, of course, we like that because... We take a lot of gas. Well, not only that, but it takes a long time at, car, at, at the car nozzle, which only puts out 5 gallons a minute. So this puts out 25 gallons a minute or something like that. Um, so that, anyway, you get a lot more gas out of this. But always, when you put it on autofill and it stops, I get a gush of, of fuel. A backwash? A backwash, and then... It goes down the side, and I'm always having to wax the side up and clean it up again. Because it's it kind clicks. of unsightly. So, I'm so you planning, need chad pads. I'm going to get some chad pads. Oh, They're 10 by 10 inches, and they go over the nozzle, and when it goes... It, it will soak it right up. Right. And it always smells so bad. I it hate always the smell smells of gas. Bad. Each one will hold up to four ounces of petroleum. It'll soak it up. Good idea. And it's called a chad because when you put the... The nozzle through it, the little thing with the little flap. Oh, it makes that little flap? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, how about the Jaja Pro Start campfire starter? Do you need that? Better than Sterno. Well, that seems to work pretty well for you. <laughs> I know, but this, this, well, Sterno is kind of illegal. This is this, Pro Start. So what this is is a... Sterno is illegal? Well, by your standards, I'm supposed to start it like a Boy Scout. Well, right? yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to be out there twirling the stick flint. in your hands. <laughs> this is a uh, 
little accessory which screws into the top of a one-pound uh, propane tank. It has a nice long nozzle on it, and you stick that down into your campfire teepee, turn it on, and a nice big flame pops up, and it starts your fire, and then you just withdraw it, and your fire's going. S'mores anytime. We'd like to have s'mores tonight, but... Too cold. Too cold. It's freezing cold out there. Pictorial Guide to RVing. This is kind of a nice product. Yes. Uh, it's a coffee table book that is pictures of old RVs, and they took the pictures from vintage postcards that have been collected over the years. 350 pictures. That'll be nice. I'm planning on buying it as soon as I can. So I'll give you a first-hand report on how it is. The review? Oops, and then, of course... Perfect games for the RV. I'm surprised you're doing this because we are very ungamey. I know, but a lot of people have kids and they have families and they want to enjoy games in their RV. And, and all these games are light and plastic and um, look like they're pretty durable and are all quite affordable and available at Target and Walmart and stores like that all over. The first one is called the Skywinder Disc Toss, a new twist on the game of flying discs. It will have you launching discs farther and faster than ever with a quick flick of the wrist. Perfect for ages 8 plus. Then the Fireball Light Up Toss. Oh, includes LED light up oh. basket style lockers. No wonder you like that one. Toss looks like, chargers. Looks like high lie baskets. And one bright fast action fireball. So you could Whoa. play this in the dark. Oh. <laughs> it lights up. We might be getting one of these. Oh, I'm going up to Target buying that soon. Oh, that sounds cool. And then the last one is um, a takeoff <laughs> on the Minute to Win It uh, TV show that's pretty popular right now on TV, I guess. I don't know. We don't watch it. And it includes some of the kinds of things that the contestants have to do on the show, uh, such as Buckethead, Card Ninja, Wheel of a Deal, Yank Me, Junk in the Trunk. Oh, that sounds dirty. <laughs> and more. It's the ultimate party pack game. Less than $20. Yeah, we don't watch uh, Minute to Win It, but they do have, I haven't kind of seen some of the stuff they have, and they have cute little games. Yeah. So, yeah. That would be fun. It'd be great for the family. And I would have think that. Uh, oh, age is six up, so yeah, most all, everybody all can play. Levels. And last but not least is the ladder ball. You throw balls that are on a string, two balls. Over the rungs of the ladder the and try to ladder. make it stick there. And these are kind of portable ladders that you can set up. And So anyway, you can buy these at Costco, BJ's, Sports Authority, Dick's Sporting Goods, and all sorts of uh, uh, places that... Uh, commonly available in America. Common available. But if you'd like to order them through the web, you can at www.sportcraft.com. And I will, of course, have a link for that on the show notes page. Whew. So many cool things. For our viewers. So we'll close talking a little bit about an article that um, <laughs> someone has written. We're not quite sure about his background. It sounds to me like he must be working on the road. And um, he has learned a number of things and has some interesting observations to make um, with this lifestyle. And we will agree or disagree. Ten truths I've learned on the open road. So he says, all those months of worrying and stress were wiped out when I bought the RV at auction, drove home, and started asking questions. That might be the wrong order, but... <laughs> And then he says, if you want to, if you want something, anything bad enough, it's usually not that hard to figure it out. You just have to go out and get it your own way. So, that's so I guess that's what truth. he did. Number two truth: the United States is freaking huge. <laughs> 
And certainly for somebody yes. who has only flown from one place to another, once you start driving it, uh, we would heartily concur. And it's so nice to be a retired person and have the time not to rush from one place to another. When you're working and your vacation time is limited, uh, the size of the United States can be a huge limitation because you just can't get very far on a two-week yeah, vacation yeah, or see very vacation, much. Right. So, you know, plan your vacation appropriately. And I remember our big vacation <laughs> that we went to as a high school senior was my folks took two weeks to go to Colorado from Chicago. And we had not enough time and a lot of driving. And certainly when you're planning a trip, you have to pay attention to the scale of, on the map. We laugh every so often when we run into Europeans in our national parks yes. who are planning to see 30 to 50 of them while they're here for a month and are just shocked to be, to be in the second park and still driving, driving, driving. And, of course, one of the thing we have found the opposite to be true in Europe, it sounds like going from Paris to Rome... It's a big deal. It's a big deal, but you can do it in a day easy, and you can drive from Sweden to Munich in a day easy. And you can drive across multiple countries, which to us would be a staggering amount of, of work. Um, because the countries are small, and that's where they come from. And he complains about Texas. He says every place in Texas is 45 <laughs> minutes away. I found this to be true of California as well. And Illinois and Mississippi and um, everywhere. But then he said, don't ever try to drive out of Tampa, Florida, around the panhandle. Don't do it. Just trust me. And we just did mm. it, and I thought it was a great trip. So I disagree. But we took our time. Yeah, we, we had didn't time. try to do it quickly. Yeah, because to go from Tampa to Tallahassee, the capital is six or eight hours. Yeah, it's so that's, not that's, direct. It's a decent trip. Number three, the ability to adapt is still the best currency in the world. And that goes for many situations, not just travel. Yes, a foregone conclusion. And, of course, that's what RVers are, is they are adaptable. <clears throat> they are adapt to different conditions and different situations and different campgrounds. They can figure out what they're going to make for dinner, even though they're boondocking and they have no electricity. But they have a nice generator. So they really do have electricity. Fired up for for dinner, but it's quiet now, so that we can make the podcast. Jeez! And we have the she furnace wants... off, and I'm freezing. What I won't do for the podcast. Anyway, I digress. Oh, Weather changes everything. Boy, that's the truth. We'd be enjoying the Natchez Trace a lot more if it was sunny and 75 degrees. It's supposed to be spring. Everybody, the, the forecast every night is about how the the average temperatures are 15 degrees warmer and blah, 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 blah. And it's been cold and rainy. And I wore my parka today. Yeah. And I think the weather affects you more as an RVer because you tend to live yeah. out of your RV or tent or whatever it is you're, you're using. When you're home, it's much easier just to kind of hole up in the house and turn on the AC or the furnace and be oblivious to what's going on outside. But I found even with this luxurious motorhome that I'm enjoying these <laughs> days, uh, when it's cold outside, oh. I sense it a lot more easily than I do when I'm in our house. Think about the weather before you go. And a lot of people have told us that they want to go to Yellowstone in the winter. It sounds nice. Sounds nice. No, it doesn't. But it I don't sounds think cold, we're do and it. I don't like cold, so we're going to leave that to somebody else. I want to work with people, number five. That's why I think he works on the road. Okay. And, and when you're working on the road, you could be kind of isolated. I could imagine that. There are many days go by when I only talk to you. <laughs> Terrible. Truth number six, food and drink connect everyone. Isn't that the truth? Everybody eats, everybody drinks. And that's why we have our official potluck plates at the ready for a moment's notice. And I have a set at, at home as well because I'm always that. ready to potluck. And like at Betty's, which we talked about at the beginning, you know, it was very nice. We actually had two community meals with them and we had... 
happy hour every night. People pouring into this campground. Even she, though she said it only has 17 sites, we're going to be very interested to see where how everybody people. wedges themselves in here <laughs> while we're talking. <laughs> we may not be able to get out at all. There's now somebody behind us, and there are at least three or four people wandering around trying to find a place to a be. Nice big fifth wheel. Yeah. Keep food in mind, and if you're in doubt, invite people over to have uh, wine and sit around the campfire and have s'mores. We'll be there. We will be there. Just invite us. And then this person says he doesn't miss television. Well, here's where we have a very dead You're having withdrawal because we don't have the dish-up tonight. <laughs> One night. <laughs> what can I say? You would miss it. I would miss it. All the technology. We cannot live without our technology. But we're certainly very highly selective in terms of yes. what we watch, and that's only gotten easier to do in our later years as there are more and more channels with more and more stuff on. And we very rarely would just turn on a TV and watch whatever is on. Uh, so we do have some control over what we watch on TV, but we watch a fair amount, I would say. But he says, I have never once missed having our television. Not once. He doesn't even have an RV, a TV in his RV. Well, and some people aren't newsaholics like we are either because some people find the news depressing, and I have to grant them that it can be. Even when I wanted to watch the Green Bay Packers dominate the playoffs this last season, I actually appreciated having to go out and watch the game. I watched the game at a local restaurant and three others alongside friends and uh, in different cities. And I may even get be the most excited person on the planet about the upcoming HBO series, Game of Thrones. But once a week, I'm sure I'll find taking a break to watch it from my computer without missing a 60-inch television. Oh, he's not so he's work. dreaming. How can I he think stream? He thinks he's going to. We found that very problematic because yeah, very rarely like to, do you get like to do streaming. an internet signal that's yeah. robust enough. For streaming. And you don't watch HBO. No. Huh. That'll be interesting. Keep an eye on this guy, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> See what he can come up with. Maybe he's got a new... Doesn't care about TV because he gets it on his... Computer. computer. Mm. Look, I won't beat this into the ground. I'm just making a personal observation. Yeah, that's true. And we don't agree with that. Okay, number nine. Number ten, nine the faster you travel, the more it sucks. <laughs> and I think what he's talking about here is is how much you miss. And just drive, drive, drive is not fun in and of itself. Or fly, fly, fly. We're not talking about taking a flight to Europe to get there. But once you get there, you spend the time to see the attractions. And, I mean, we did this when we were in Ireland we flew to Shannon, and we rented a car for two weeks, and we only did half the country, <laughs> half maybe. The country. And that's not a we big. We didn't country. even make an attempt to do the whole country because we knew we just couldn't do it. And we don't like to do things fast, and that's why we're taking a long time to do the Natchez Trace. <laughs> even though we're not sure why we're here, <laughs> <laughs> but we are. Okay, number ten, your life swells to the parameters you allow. And this is interesting. It's we have a big true. RV, so... We have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of stuff. But we could live in a small RV, and we would be just as happy because we would have less room for less stuff. And we think every so often about how would it be to be a full-timer, and I think one of the reasons we don't do it is we can afford to keep our house while we're on the road and save ourselves the trouble of getting rid of all that stuff, which yeah. would be a really huge job. But I have to say, when we're traveling, by and large, I don't miss the stuff that's in my house very much. No. But I do kind of miss, not, I would miss it if it wasn't there and I could go back to it. Yeah. 
But his point, too, is is that this makes you aware of your impact on the environment. And certainly we are aware of uh, how much water we use and how much electricity we have to use and and all of those things. So that when you go home, you're probably a little bit more conscientious about uh, she's giving me the evil eye. No, you're going to be a greener person. A greener person, which is good. But you can live in a small RV if that's the size RV you have. And you will make do with it. And if you have a big RV, you'll fill it up. So your life expands to fit the space that you have to live in. And that's probably true. We agree. We agree. And with that, we will agree to fade out. Before our batteries fail and make us fade out. Oh, no. The battery still says it has... Oh, yes. We've used up a lot. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.